Hey, Sandy. What's going on? How you doing? I'm still vaccine free. <laughs> I need a vaccine. Oh no. <laughs> how do you do you know what your prospect is? Like how close we're getting? We're getting close. I think uh, my age category is supposed to go online on May 7th and they're accelerating through the age categories and so like I mean, they're only at 50 now, and so they'll drop down to 35 by May 7th, and then they're going to drop down to 18, I think, just a couple of days like after that. So we're almost almost there. But that's... We're almost there. And I'm double-vaxxed. Yeah. I know. You could be like the fucking king of France right now. <laughs> well, not right now. In, in a week and a half. That'll right, be two course. weeks out for my second vaccine, which is the period of time that you need to wait before you become what they call fully vaccinated. So um, yeah, I'm in that waiting period now and uh, feeling pretty good about it. Man, they really, they improved things for the second vaccine. I I got there, the lineup was nil. It was like basically non-existent. And they had a DJ out front who was really trying to hype people up in front of the hospital. (laughs) And they had a Red Cross volunteer who would like, who would be, as soon as you got out for for getting your shot would be like you did it yes 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 and just like cheer you on like it was it was actually really you know a lot of people don't think about like the psychological aspects of like uh public health I suppose and just the way that they made the energy in the space was I think thoughtful like um they had a bunch of young volunteers who were there with balloons and things and like trying to make kids feel really good and it was just it was really nice and uh, I hope that everyone has similar experiences when they go it felt like a a community effort wow wow I feel so bad for being cynically um, opposed to the comments of our minister of health Christiane Dubé who was like we need to reach young people maybe we need DJs (laughs) (laughs) no you don't need djs you might want djs but it shouldn't be your first priority let's say that (laughs) right yeah well i mean i think that um you know in quebec anyway our vaccination rates are really high uh, among the oldest age groups who have had the most time to get vaccinated something like 85 percent of people have been And so that's giving me a lot of hope, especially as we just finished a second weekend full of anti-vaccine protests in various Mm -hmm. cities across this country, including one Mm -hmm. that disrupted the vaccine schedule at the Stade Olympic in Montreal the same day that the Montreal police like declared illegal and arrested folks protesting for May Day. So if there's what? Yeah. If there's any doubt what side the police are on, folks, I mean, there should not be. Wow. And with that, do we have any people to thank people who are not like the police at all? (laughs) Yeah. Well, if I'm about to say your name and you're like the police, I mean, you got to you got to rethink your your choices of life because that's not good. We have a lot of folks to thank. And so this week, I would like to say thank you so, so much to Ash, Leah, Sean, Kate, Adrian, William, and Chris. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much. So, Nora, we are recording this on May 2nd. Mm-hmm. That is the day after May Day. 
And I just wanted to say before we got into our general topic for the night um, that I did a lot of reflecting yesterday on how many workers uh, we've lost during this pandemic Mm -hmm. and how little our governments value working class people. And when I say our, I really mean governments around the world, um, because, you know, from here to the United States to uh, Brazil to India, all over the place, the people who who are carrying um, the burden of making life go on during this pandemic are also being disrespected at the same time and left to die. And so many of those workers are black workers in Canada. Um, and I just, I really want to spend some time and encourage our listeners to spend some time really reflecting on that and what it means. There are whole hosts of people in our society um, that do a lot of really skilled labor that is deeply undervalued. And that is the foundation that allows our society to operate. And those workers um, have have always been devalued uh, by our governments, but in this pandemic, it you know it's just it, the decisions our governments have made have been murderous to these people, murderous. And I just I I honestly I mean I say this um, often, and I don't want it to lose its potency, but I truly cannot understand how the people in power live with themselves after doing what they did to so many workers across Canada during this pandemic who have uh, kept us, uh, you know, uh, with the ability to uh, continue to get our groceries, um, that have uh, kept us with the uh, ability to Uh, have our long-term care facilities continue to operate, to have the hospitals continue to operate, who are providing transportation, who are making sure that our cities are continuing to run. All of these folks who are doing all of this labor, um, the folks who are working in factories, uh, the folks who are making sure that we get our packages, the folks who are working at Canada Post, the folks who are working in, uh, in meat facilities, the folks who are picking our food, all of these people... Um, the government called them essential and then left them to die. And I really just think, you know, uh, they're, they're, I mean, if I was working at a union uh, right now, if I was um, the head of any major union, I would be calling for um, uh, some, some sort of um, memorial day remembrance in the future because <laughs> this is just so outrageous. Uh, in addition to thinking about how we protect these workers in the future, because this sort of thing cannot be allowed to happen again. Well, in addition to May Day, this past week, it was also the International Day of Mourning, uh, which is a day where uh, we recognize workers whose lives were lost on the job in the past year. And it's not too surprising that that list this year was quite long with a lot of people who died from COVID. 
Um, and, you know, I've been tracking these deaths. And so I know very well, like where and who has been targeted by these uh, unfair labor practices, uh, corporations that don't care about their workers at all, and resulting in people literally giving their lives to care for others or to make sure others have food to eat or whatever, whatever is deemed essential by the by the provincial governments. And you know, we've had 84 workers die, uh, not including healthcare workers. So 84 workers have died from having caught COVID on the job. And it's the case in, I would say, most jurisdictions. And by jurisdictions, I mean um, where the public health authority has the power to say uh, where outbreaks are. And so depending on where you are in the in the country, like BC and Alberta, that's a province-wide thing. Saskatchewan, they're not saying fuck all. Um, Ontario, it's 37 different <laughs> units. Um, and so based on jurisdiction, most of them are not saying where workers are getting COVID and dying if they're saying anything. And so, for example, in Peterborough this last week, it was announced that someone had caught COVID from their partner who caught it from a workplace outbreak. But in nowhere in the news were they saying, where did this worker work? Which should, and we've said this before on the show, this should have been mandated by the government that at the very least, corporations have to announce when their outbreaks lead to death. Uh, I got a message from someone who did their own research, who's in the community, who told me that this worker um, was at Walmart uh, and so caught uh, COVID out at a Walmart uh, in Peterborough where there had been more than one outbreak. And it's like it shouldn't take that. It shouldn't take um, individuals just, you know, asking around and figuring out where these deaths are happening because we'll obviously not capture. We might not even be capturing half of the deaths. Actually, I'm sure we're not capturing half of the deaths. And on the healthcare worker side, it's it's not that dissimilar. It's more regulated in some ways. Um, and so we have more information about the people who have died within healthcare work uh, during this pandemic. But there have been uh, 57 workers who have died in this pandemic who work in healthcare. So that's in addition to the 84 I just mentioned. The most recent worker who has died was a, was a nurse who worked at the Maple Grove Care Community in Brampton. Her name is Lorraine Gouveia. And uh, she worked at a facility owned by Siena Senior Living, where more than 300 uh, residents have died across the province in Siena Senior Living facilities. And it's the facility that has the most number of workers who have died. Three workers, all who have been black, have died in their facilities. And, you know, it was that, like the union was the one that announced her, her death. The union did not say where she worked. I assume there's some level of privacy that they decided to respect. I went through obits. I went through Facebook. I tried to figure out if it, like where, where she was working. Uh, and the Toronto Star is, is who reported that she worked at that facility, uh, but did not then say how many other people had died at Siena Senior Living the same week that the Canadian press reports that um, uh, someone had left the management at Sienna Senior Living saying that the that the uh, management's um, behavior during the pandemic was was atrocious, including sometimes there would be senior managements of an entire facility that were all drunk at the same time. What? Literally, that's what he said. Now, Sienna Senior Living rejects that as being the case. So you can imagine that there's some sort of fighting between these former the former executive and the current executive. But yeah, like this is it's a it's a joke because government has done fuck all to make sure 
that the that the residents and the staff were kept safe. And we just had the long-term care report uh, in Ontario release that has said literally, I mean, the report reads as if I wrote it for my book two months ago, which I literally did. <laughs> There's nothing in it that is new. And um, and so as you say, yeah, this is about governments literally not not caring and in fact benefiting from this from this tragedy and this horror. Yeah. So um, starting off on a bit of a sobering note, but uh, Nora and I, we we remember these workers. We hope that you take the time to reflect and um, uh, not just remember these workers, but also push for changes uh, to how we protect workers who are devalued in our society right now. Um, it's again, it, this is this is our world, and uh, if we don't if we don't push um, and refuse to accept uh, the 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 current realities of it, um, the powers that be will continue to run roughshod over um, our loved ones. Yeah. Okay, but we're not talking about the pandemic today. <laughs> no, <laughs> finally taking a break from the pandemic a today. Bit of a break from the pandemic today. We are talking about a much better situation. Way way less depressing, right? Like totally fine, like totally amazing. <laughs> we're talking about <laughs> post-secondary education and Specifically, we're talking about Laurentian, and we're going to talk about the University of Toronto and the Canadian Association of University Teachers. Yeah, this is going to be a great episode because it's, um, I mean, differently depressing is a kind of <laughs> different. Yeah, nothing about this is going to be good, you guys. Um, have you heard what's happening at Laurentian? <laughs> have you heard of what's happening at Laurentian University? Um, before we get into maybe what the story of Laurentian University is, maybe we should tell you a little bit about Laurentian University. Oh, okay. What What's your favorite thing about Laurentian University, Sandy? What's my favorite thing? Oh, um, <laughs> that is such a question. Uh, maybe the fact that it's in Sudbury. I kind of like Sudbury. Yeah. But I also like that it's bilingual it's mm. uh you know one of the very few bilingual institutions in Ontario or outside of like Quebec right yeah. and um that means that it is a very very important institution um in the landscape of Canada yes and it's not just that it's bilingual but it's tricultural as well it's one of the few universities that has for decades um had higher education studies into indigenous issues. So everything from sociology to the Northern School of Medicine uh, has its roots in in Sudbury, in, uh, in Laurentian University. And so it's a very unique university. It's, you know, it's, it's one of these, like Ontario has many small community universities, you know, Guelph, Trent, Lakehead, Nipissing. And they serve their community and they serve their community in a very important way. And oftentimes they're in working class communities. So they're in communities where access to higher education is not obvious. It's not necessarily inevitable. And it's a way to bring higher education to a population that might otherwise have no contact with a university. And you can imagine that that creates a lot of interesting community things like projects and relationships and partnerships and internships and just ways that the university finds itself really involved with 
the community. And so that's that's really what Laurentian has been for decades. And um, and for sure, the pride of Franco-Ontarians uh, for, for decades has been kind of located or housed within Laurentian University. And that has all, I don't know, I don't want to say come to an end exactly, but the future of that that school is definitely up in the air. Yeah, so this year, um, Laurentian University announced that it would have to file for insolvency. Now, this is really stunning. Hundreds of, of staff and teaching staff, like faculty, have lost their positions, and they have cut... I believe just under 70 programs and uh, like central programs. Like, I mean, when I heard that they cut programs, I I thought to myself, okay, it's going to be the the usual suspects. They're going to, they're going to cut, you know, the, the types of programs that uh, uh, universities are, are always threatening to cut like women's studies and area studies and so on. Oh my gosh, it's so much deeper than that. They've cut history. They've cut physics. They've cut, like, it's across the board. Uh, I believe it's 20 in the high 20s of French programs that have been cut and uh, um, in the 30s of English programs that have been cut. And you might be thinking to yourself, oh, okay, well, they've cut more English programs and French programs. Interesting. Well, I mean, the context of Laurentian being one of the, as Nora just described, very few places um, where where one can in in this bilingual province of Ontario study um, in in French uh, the the context of cutting that many French uh, programs is way way deeper and oh my fucking god how did this happen yeah how did this happen how does a publicly funded university find itself filing for bankruptcy which is where it is right now now to back up maybe it makes sense to just explain a little bit about how the funding model works in ontario so there are three pots of money that 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 money comes from when you're funding a university and this is the case across canada money comes from government grants it comes from tuition fees, and then it comes through research funding, and research funding can be a variety of different things. There's also a pocket of money that comes from philanthropy, but that changes from place to place, and so it's difficult to say that that's like a steady kind of pot of money. And so funding through uh, government grants, until the, the 1990s, government grants in Ontario represent about 80% of the funding of higher education institutions, and 20% uh, was then caught up by tuition fees. And over the 1990s, 2000, 2010s, thanks mostly to the Liberal Party of Ontario, um, but also, of course, thanks to the, um, the the policies of all parties, frankly, um, tuition fees just skyrocketed. And as they skyrocketed, more than doubled the public funding was pulled back. And so what universities then found themselves with was far less public funding, a need, quote unquote, to then increase tuition fees to get more private funding into the facilities to to pay for the operating costs of the university. And at the same time, they were looking for ways to maximize student profit 
And so they looked at international students. And Laurentian is uniquely located for international students because the Francophonie, the international Francophone world, has a lot of students in it. And, you know, telling international students, hey, you can come to Ontario, you can study in French, uh, you won't be in Quebec. So, you know, you might have a path to citizenship in, in the rest of Canada that's a little less complicated than, than Quebec's path to citizenship. Uh, the university started to rely a lot on international students because international students' tuition fees were often double or sometimes triple or even higher, uh, the domestic student tuition fee. And so that is all kind of like true at every university to different extents, right? Like the University of Toronto, which has a lot of international students, still has a ton of other kinds of funding sources to be able to weather a kind of a, a crisis that might be brought on by, by COVID. So Laurentian is a small university and has always struggled with enrollment uh, on the French side for, for domestic students. And the pandemic hits and all of a sudden any financial issues that the university has become even more pronounced because they have lost um, not just tuition fees from Canadian students, but that international student piece because people just are not necessarily going to university. I mean, we're in a fucking pandemic. On top of this, you have an incredibly ruthless and probably completely fucking idiotic leadership at the university that rather than saying, okay, so we've got a fucking serious situation on our hands. Let's go fucking occupy Queens Park until they increase our funding has just been like, yeah, fuck it. We're going to cut all these programs. And it's interesting because I, I, I kind of compare it to a situation that happened in Quebec a couple of years ago where the provincial government announced that it was freezing its funding to Quebec institutions, which was a de facto decrease of about 5% if you consider inflationary increases. And the University of Laval in Quebec City put on their homepage a petition that the university wanted to get students to sign uh, to protest the fact that, the, that it was unfunded. So there was at least like some kind of political action that the, that the administration took rather than accepting the fact that the government was refusing to increase its fees, uh, increase its operating grants to be able to fund, you know, that in, that inflationary increase. But Laurentian's ad administration has done nothing like this. And instead, as Sandy said, they've fired everybody. They're closing up programs and students have been have found themselves now in year one, in year two, in year three, finishing year four and having no idea if they're going to be able to finish their degree at Laurentian or then fucking where, because it's not as if Sudbury has other universities in it. And it has... It has ruined, it is ruining a lot of people's mm -hmm. lives right now, all because of shitheaded management from, from the university and the refusal of the provincial government to solve this instantly, which would just be, here's the money. Yeah, and you'd, you'd think that given that um, the powers that be at Laurentian University would be telling us the story of how all of this underfunding, these decisions to to defund, if you will, post-secondary education over the years uh, from largely, again, the liberal uh, governments in Ontario, but also um, the, uh, the PCs, um, you, like, you'd think that that would be a part of um, their message, that they would let people know about that. But let me read you what the president of Laurentian University put out, um, uh, just a, a, a snippet of what uh, his announcement was when they announced that they were cutting these programs. He says um, that despite a long history of success, a number of developments over the past decades have put increased strain, over the past decade, has put increased strain on the operational and financial health of the university. And I, you know, I'm reading this, I'm like, oh, he's talking about the decade. Surely, surely this guy is going to bring up funding 
He's going to bring up what's going on at the government level and the fact that they um, have have not adequately funded post-secondary education for a minute. Finally, finally. And he says, he continues, these strains include a combination of factors such as historical recurring deficits. Okay, they're blaming themselves. Cool. (laughs) Declining demographics in northern Ontario. Oh, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, uh, population decline. Okay, uh, <laughs> sure. The closure of our Barry campus in 2019. Uh. <laughs> it's. I mean, it's. A, it. That's a weird one. It's a weird one because you'd think the closure of a campus. How does that lead to financial constraints? I'm not really sure. Unless maybe they're admitting that this uh, satellite campus was only open to. <laughs> try to to siphon uh, some dollars into the main campus. I'm not sure. We've had yeah. that critique before, I think Nora. literally on campus <laughs> there, never, we, we've never, talked about that. <laughs> yeah, never thought I'd see uh, a, a university um, president just openly admit that. Okay, so he says the closure of our Barry campus in 2019. Great. And then he says, and the domestic tuition reduction and freeze that was implemented in 2019. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, various costs and revenue impacts due to the global pandemic. Various. That's it. That's those are the reasons. <laughs> those are the reasons. Oh. President Robert Hache, PhD, <laughs> has <laughs> identified uh, to that has brought Laurentian to this place. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? <laughs> like, he is not... I need people to understand that haché actually means chopped. <laughs> Bobby Chopped. <laughs> Bobby Chopped says that this is the fault of Laurentian, basically himself, 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 uh, tuition reductions and uh, the global pandemic. Uh, that's a lot of bullshit, like an incredible amount of bullshit. That is a hell of a lot of bullshit. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, like, uh, <laughs> it's really like, I know people who have been affected this by this in very profound ways, like very, very deep ways. Um, I also know of some of the history of like francophone kind of liberation and national sovereignty kind of uh, struggles that that went into fighting to create a university like Laurentian. And that happened at the same time as a lot of these other smaller universities were founded by these towns that had large industries. The industries were clearly not going to be lasting forever. And that university was going to be the only way to make sure that a town like Peterborough, a town like Sudbury, a town like North Bay was going to be able to to create its own economic activity and to survive. Like this is the reason why Laurentian exists. And Laurentian's not even the smallest of the small universities. Laurentian is quite a significant hub because also across Northern Ontario, there has been a massive centralization of services in Sudbury. And so when you've got a massive centralization of services, especially health services, um, including like cancer care for most of northeastern Ontario, you have to go down to Sudbury, regardless of how fucking far away you live. And like there's a direct connection between that and then like the the educational opportunities that exist if you decide to study at the Northern School of Medicine, which is this joint program between uh, Laurentian and Lakehead in, in Thunder Bay, which for, for folks who don't know the geography, I mean, between Laurentian and, and Lakehead and Thunder Bay is like 
a day of driving. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, these are not close locations, but the 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 like this is such an affront to Northern Ontario. It's such an affront to Sudbury. It's such an affront to the fucking truth of like Sandy. What exactly happened between the periods of 1995? And today in higher education, Ontario. I mean, it, it, it's so obvious what the problem is. It's just really stunning to, to see that the, uh, the president of the, the institution just shirk responsibility away from the government like this. Like the, the government in uh, Ontario progressively um, uh, reduced their or t- I'm just going to keep saying defunded, defunded uh, post-secondary education. There was no um, vote or decision uh, to make that that sort of um, uh, uh, a choice to reduce public funding uh, at the the legislature, they've just over time uh, progressively through bre- budgets reduced um, the the amount of support that the the government was providing to post secondary institutions and increased uh, tuition fees to make up for the lack of funding, um, but not in in such a way to to completely cover uh, like all of the, the, the funding that was being taken away from the per-student funding um, that uh, Ontario withdrew from, from these institutions. At the same time that that was happening, some institutions, notably the University of Toronto and like Queen's University, were, were loving it. They were loving it. They wanted it. They're like, hey, government, more of this, please. Like, stop. You mm-hmm. know, we don't want to be um, uh, what they started calling publicly assisted, which is such bullshit language or public institutions, but publicly assisted institutions, as they were saying. We want to be private. The University of Toronto was really leading this charge um, um, with their their fucking uh, 2030 plan that they called towards 2030, saying by 2030, we want the funding model in post-secondary education in Ontario to change such that, um, you know, the, you, one, allow us to increase tuition fees however we'd like because they want to be like the United States. They want to be able to um, pretend that there's some sort of um, uh, elite by just by virtue of uh, keeping people out who are poor, I suppose, um, <laughs> and increasing tuition fees, um, and also uh, you know uh, amassing massive endowments, and they also want to have less strings attached uh, by the government, and they don't want the government to be to be um, to be the the primary funders of post secondary education. And while this was happening, while the University of Toronto, who, um, you know, with the name recognition that it has around the world, is perhaps one of the only institutions in Ontario that could survive such a model, um, they are saying, you know, we this is what we want. All the other institutions were like, yeah, we want that too, which I remember, you know, working at the, uh, at, at the Canadian Federation of Students at the time with Nora thinking, are these other institutions nuts? <laughs> Like, yeah. like U of T is is trying to destroy them. Don't they see that? <laughs> like they're trying to destroy their competition. And why are these other institutions thinking that in 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 a world where everything uh, will be dictated by tuition fees, that some of these smaller institutions aren't going to die out? In a world where the government is um, is shirking its responsibility to fund. Uh, high quality education that some of these smaller institutions aren't going to uh, perish in that sort of environment. 
Mm -hmm. And here we are today um, seeing, I think, you know, uh, the the University of Toronto's plan hasn't fully come to fruition. um, But in terms of the the um, reduction of uh, of money from the government that certainly has and we're seeing some of the the fallout from that at Laurentian and it is as you say destroying hundreds of lives thousands of lives yeah I I want to just bring in another province because I don't want everyone to think that this is only an Ontario thing all the provinces have their own fucking piece of shit ideas percolating in the in the minds of uh, the people that lead their province. Uh, the government of Alberta has just announced that they have a 10-year plan to overhaul higher education. Now, this is a government that pulled out $700 <laughs> million from higher education this past year. And, um, and their plan... I'm reading uh, the, this from the Edmonton Journal. I mean, some of the the stuff that the Edmonton Journal says doesn't make any sense, but you can tell that it's a little bit too jargony for the journalist since we just copied it down and posted it as an article. But they are going to fast track opportunities to commercialization. And one of the ways in which they're going to do this is that oh my God. I know they're going to have a framework – uh, it, it, that will be an important component. This says uh, some fucking talking head named Bronte Volk. Um, the, the framework is an important component in the knowledge-based economy to ensure ideas and technologies developed in Alberta turn into intellectual properties that benefit the province, which is like all like literally meaningless. Like if, you know, I've, I've been, this is language from fucking 15 years ago that we saw in Ontario. And the idea that like, Patents are what should be driving research and the commercialization agenda. Literally, all that does is it disincentivizes the private sector from doing its own research and development. What does that do? That strangles the number of PhD positions that are in the private sector. So the universities become the only location for research and development. And the corporate world just sucks off of the universities as much as they can. And all these PhD graduates in science and tech are like, oh, shit, there's literally no jobs because they don't exist in the private sector anymore because the universities have just been outsourced to do that. And then the other thing that I will mention, the the, the minister of higher education, this guy doesn't sound like he knows um, too, too much about what's going on. But the advanced education minister, Dimitrios Nikolaitis, told the Edmonton Journal uh, we uh, the, the part of the plan includes a cap on tuition fees, um, which sounds good. It sounds like you're regulating the hikes to make sure they're not too high. And he says, we recognize the importance for there to continue to be a cap. Obviously, conservatives are going to like that. We'll explain why. And then some jurisdictions don't regulate tuitions. Others do. I think the importance of having some predictability is critical. And I think a cap maintains that. Sandy, what jurisdictions don't regulate tuitions? Yeah, what is he talking about? <laughs> <laughs> What is he talking about? I I I I don't th- I like there is literally nowhere in Canada that doesn't regulate tuition like to 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 like at all like even unregulated international student tuition is t- like de facto regulated just at a very high fucking rate like of course the Edmonton Journal wasn't like Nicolaitis doesn't know what he's talking about <laughs> they just moved on from that quote wow that's uh, a stunning thing to just let go jeez that's uh absolutely mm-hmm. ridiculous um yeah you're a, a fucking fool like much of the alberta legislature <laughs> um fuck what the fuck 
Yeah, I don't know. I guess, you know, we'll watch for the next 15 years to see how amazing this plan is. But th- th- this is the issue, right? It's like when you talk about capping tuition fees, the cap usually is at some rate that doesn't sound like it's too high, right? In Ontario, the cap was a bit complicated, but it was between 5 and 8%, depending on the kind of student you were. And that was enough that compounded year over year of a tuition fee framework that lasted for fuck I don't remember 10 years like then it pushed tuition fees to be almost double plus the previous increases to that then did push it to be double and as every one of these as Sandy like I think what you said is really important to highlight like there was never a decision made in the government uh, in the in the legislative assembly of Ontario to say we want higher education to be public, uh, privately funded and therefore we're passing this act to privately fund public higher education it's been death by a fucking million cuts and a million small increases to tuition fees and the Ontario Liberals like this is them this is their fucking disaster zone and as we said last week these pieces of shit that fucking set the pins up for Doug Ford to fucking bumble over and oh he got a strike they're all in the fucking Prime Minister's office and in Minister's offices right now they all went from Ontario right to the federal government and it's um, it's really enraging (laughs) like I feel like a lot of deep rage when I think about this fucking shit. Yeah, the, the other thing that, that is um, uh, that folks in Ontario and across Canada are going to really want to pay attention to is that the government of Ontario has been talking about, you know, and this is through successive governments, um, uh, changing the way that, uh, that they fund post-secondary education, changing the funding formula. Now, the funding formula is really complicated, but generally um, you can expect that the funding is tied to how many people are attending post-secondary institution. It's like, it's, it's not quite that, but I'm, you know, just trying to simplify things so that you can understand um, how it works. So basically per student, um, uh, the, the government uh, makes a calculation uh, and decides how much each student is worth and, uh, and, and funds schools that way. Now, what I was saying about the University of Toronto uh, really trying to change things, this is one of their schemes of how to change things. Um, And one of the things that they've uh, been pushing for for years, the liberals were interested in doing, and the the progressive conservatives have said that they are now going to implement, is uh, changing the funding formula uh, so that the the funding is uh, based on performance, now, we, we've talked about this uh, before, um, and uh, basically uh, what they want to do is increase uh, what they have already started slowly to put in. So I think it's something like less than 2% of funding is based off of performance right now, and they want to increase that up to like 60% based on fun, on performance and the performance metrics would be um, the employment earnings of graduates. Unbelievable. I love that one. Like <laughs> good, like no schools yeah. can have music under those fucking conditions. Exactly. The graduation rate. Okay. They'll just graduate everybody. And the, pro- right. The proportion of full time uh, of graduates who are employed full time in a related or partially related field to their program of study. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the main performance metrics. So think about what's happening right now in Laurentian. Um, like I said before, it's a bunch of different programs that have been cut. And so just to, to rhyme some of them off so you get a sense, it's like anthropology, actuarial science, archaeology, uh, environmental studies, geography, 
Italian labor studies. Okay, just as like I like actually the math department has been cut. Music, political science. I want to I want to stop you though. Like like hearing like environmental studies, like Laurentian's environmental studies program and and their sustainability stuff and the work that was done to reclaim Sudbury from the mines, like that is fundamental to Laurentian University. Italian, that's fundamental to the fucking Italian community that lives in Sudbury. Like you're, you're literally naming programs that are so fundamentally Laurentian that it's really Mm -hmm. wild. Etude Francaise, Etude Francaise has been, has been cut. (laughs) Right. Sage thumb, like midwifery. It, it's, yeah, it's uh, it's théâtre. Uh, um, that's the French theater program. Um, it, it's it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty stunning. And you think about that having happened just now, and the fact that the the Ontario government is moving towards this new. Uh, performance-based measure. Well, Laurentian just failed all of its performance. How does yeah. it get back to a place where it gets funded? Uh, it's like the death knell for the institution. Now, the government of Ontario has, you know, when the pandemic um, uh, became, when it became very clear that the pandemic was going to uh, decimate um, just uh, about the entire economy last year, they deferred uh, implementing uh, this new funding model. But they didn't say till when it would be deferred, and they were previously requiring institutions to sign on to this funding model. So they the institutions would have to commit to, to what programs they were going to be working on and so on, like and sign, the, sign these uh, funding arrangements with the, uh, with the government because in Ontario, each university is set up by a separate act. Uh, it's all very confusing. Um, but essentially... Uh, they, they, they would need to have uh, specific agreements with each of these institutions and the government was going to force them to do that and they have deferred it. So this is really important for those of you who are activists uh, in a post-secondary space, no matter where you are in Canada, because um, so much of what happens in Ontario drives what happens at the rest of the institutions around the country. There is time to make this funding model stop. This type of funding model has decimated public education in the United States. We like know that it doesn't work. <laughs> it's very clear that it doesn't work, but um, conservative is going to conservative and liberal is going to conservative too. So that's <laughs> what, that's what happens. Um, you know, they are chasing uh, being the worst of the worst and who knows why, but uh, this is a really important moment. You know, as we come out of the pandemic, it's, uh, you know, it is a really imperative that the academic community uh, make sure that this this funding model doesn't get a chance to be um, undeferred and that uh, other institutions or other jurisdictions across Canada um, watch out for this kind of thing because we've we've seen it over the decades that once um, a really conservative policy is put in place in Ontario or in Nova Scotia that it tends to get copied across the, the, the country. Yeah, so we don't have tons of time left and I still want us to get to a U of T, but I, I think like it's very important to underscore the fact that university administrations are usually comprised of not the smartest cats in the world and they're not really politicians either. They're usually like academics that fell up and this can be fought. <laughs> 
I mean, I was in meetings with one of with one of Laurentian's presidents, uh, Judith uh, Lightstone or Lighthouse or something. This was a, a couple of years ago. She was probably president two presidents before uh, Bobby uh, Hatchet job, and she was like. <laughs> I've never met someone who's who was so out to lunch and she had just left Laurentian to go to Concordia and then they fired her at Concordia or something. Um, so like I know I know these people like they, they are a prototype. They are an archetype, I should say. So you can scare the administration. Folks in Sudbury like Laurentian was the 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 outcome of a community struggle and it will take a community struggle to save Laurentian, but it is so possible. The hardest thing about an institution is the physical plant and Laurentian has the physical plant. You have the spaces, you have the structures, you have the knowledge, you have literally all of the people who run the programs and who take the programs and the administrators have nothing in their hands. And so I really, really hope like send out those calls for support for folks who might be nearby or for those of us who have to do like things from a distance, but it absolutely can be, be fought. This is not a given. And I hope, uh, you know, of course things are more complicated during the pandemic, but it also opens some interesting opportunities as well. Uh, and so I really, really hope that, you know, so, like I know that LUFA, the faculty associate association is trying to figure out how to deal with this and they're under massive attack, having basically lost like just a huge chunk of their members by a stroke of a pen, but also for other faculty and other universities, like this is the, this is a, the fire alarm is sounding because if, if academic freedom, if the permanence of your institution can be fucked by a bunch of dumbasses in administration, plus the, the provincial government, then everything about this system is on very shaky ground. And so this is not just a struggle for Laurentian. This is a struggle for all within higher education within this country who can see very well that right-wing governments now have a path forward to destroy higher education, which they would love to use and pour all of the resources into the U of T's and the Queens of the world. Um, and you have to fight this with everything you've got because it really is the most important fight, I think, in the history of Laurentian after the one that created the university in the first place. So U of T, real quick, saw this headline that the Monk School has canceled a panel after invited guests decided that they weren't going to show up <laughs> because mm -hmm. the Canadian Association of Uni University Teachers did something that they very rarely ever do. They have censured the University of Toronto. And what that censure calls for is for other academics to refuse any appointments or speaking engagements at the institution until the censure is lifted. Whew. That is major. A lot of uh, <laughs> faculty members um, at other institutions and at the University of Toronto are are um, honoring the censure. It has been reported in Human Rights Watch. Like, woof, what is going on at the University of Toronto, Nora? Yeah, this is a really stunning story. Uh, so the University of Toronto had a hiring process within their faculty of law. They were uh, ready to hire Dr. Valentina Azarova to a position. And uh, I believe they even like offered it to her. So like she was aware yeah. <laughs> that she got yeah. the job. They yeah, they offered it to her. Yeah. And it was a unanimous decision of the hiring committee. Let's be clear. Unanimous. 
Right. Sure. So like in classic U of T fashion, um, a sitting judge, a sitting judge. I mean, judges, this is also a whole bunch of like interesting bullshit. Like judges are not supposed to do this kind of thing. A sitting judge who is a donor to the faculty of law at the University of Toronto raised concerns that Dr. Azarova's research into Palestine and Israel uh, was... I don't know, uh, too human rightsy, I guess. And the university intervened and overturned the decision of the hiring committee, and she was not offered the job, or the job offer was rescinded. Really shocking move from, I mean, shocking if you've never thought about the University of Toronto <laughs> and their administration, but wow, what a what a fucking bunch of shit. And like the U of T almost got away with this. If it wasn't for activists and faculty and, um, and, and a few journalists that have continued to write about this, because this has not really been mainstream media, this would have gone away. Um, but uh, CAUT censure is suggesting that maybe this isn't going to go away. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, first of all, like, uh, bravo to the CAUT for for taking this position. This is like a ridiculous uh, fucking uh, um, decision by the University of Toronto. It's uh, absolutely disgusting and it should not stand. Uh, and uh, the CAUT, like this is, yeah, flex your power, issue the censure, tell other institutions and other faculty members at other institutions, use your power to say that no, 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 you cannot... Uh, discriminate against uh, a uh, a professor like this simply because she supports Palestine. She supports Palestinians. She supports human fucking rights. She does not support apartheid. <laughs> like, I just like uh, that's ridiculous. And I'm so glad to see that this uh, CAUT is taking action in this way and using its power um, to to have a measurable impact uh, at uh, the University of Toronto such that people are forced to kind of open their eyes and turn to this issue and, uh, uh, you know, know that it exists. Because I think, again, otherwise, it would have been able to fly under the radar. So we'll see how long this lasts. And uh, wow, I mean, this is, this is it's, you know, the last time that the CAUT issued a censure was in uh, 2008. Uh, like this is a, a pretty major decision and, and will um, have, uh, it, it will definitely be felt by the University of Toronto. So. But doesn't the U of T have like a proud and long tradition in supporting apartheid? Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> Going right back to South Africa. Absolutely. They, I mean, um, the, the University of Toronto sides with power all the time until it looks like power is about to lose. And then it'll side with uh, the side of truth and justice if it, if it feels like, um, oh, th things are going bad in, in this direction. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Yeah, par for the course for you. Too. Yeah, so if you are listening and you're someone that might be um, asked to participate in something at the University of Toronto, um, just say no for now. Just say no. Honor the censure. <laughs> 